0: I'm John Chasteen, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church, Um, and it's an honor to be able to bring God's Word to you today. Before I do that, I want to just provide some encouragement to our fathers in the room today. The older that I get, the more grateful and thankful I am for my dad. I don't know if that—when I was younger— I thought I knew everything, and so my dad was little, um, and and I you know. But the older that I get, I'm just really grateful. I've just seen, particularly over the past year, a number of just ways to just reminded of just God's favor and grace, and my dad and his leadership and our family, and so that's just one. I would just encourage you, even young ones in the room here, um, and, and you know, looking for ways to just show gratitude for your fathers in your life. Um, On the flip side, my daughter is now 16 and driving, and so I am quickly reminded of just how fleeting that time with children in the home in that day-to-day, face-to-face influence and impact that, that we have on their life. And so I just wanna read and then pray for us. I'm gonna read a few verses out of Psalm 145. You just listen to these words. And this is my heart, my prayer, my challenge. For us as we think about Father's Day today, this is what the psalmist writes. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And this is my prayer. I'm going to pray for us today as we kick off the sermon here. One generation, let's commend to the next generation the mighty, awesome, glorious acts of God that, that our children would see in us fathers who treasure, who delight. Who make much of God beyond just lip service, but this is the measure and guide of our lives. That we would pour forth the fame of his goodness and sing of his righteousness. Join me as I lead us in prayer. Father, God, we need your grace in this. So God, in particular, I I pray for us as we reflect on our earthly fathers, God, would you, would you help us be thankful? Would you cultivate gratitude in our lives for their investment in our lives? God, maybe for some, even as we think of our fathers, there's brokenness, there's sorrow, there's grief. I know one day I'll stand up here and preach and my father will be with you in heaven. And, and it'll be a reminder of, of some loss and yet joy at the same time. And so, God, we just pray, would you be enough for us today? And would you be near to us in our sorrow and grief? But, God, I also pray for the men in the room who are fathers, who desire to be fathers. God, would, would Psalm 145 ring true of us that we would commend to the next generation, that we would Speak. We would sing. we would make much of your abundant goodness. God that if our kids don't get anything in life, they walk away from our lives knowing that God is good, sovereign and wise. and in particularly seeing that in, in, in Jesus Christ and the gospel. So God, we need your help today. I need your help. God to make us into men and fathers who do this well. So God, we just ask for your help in that. And God, as we jump into 1 Corinthians today, God, would you take your word and to illuminate our minds and stir our affections for you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter one. As Tanner kicked off last week, we are continuing this series through 1 Corinthians, and, um, and Tanner, Tanner did a great job last week of, of, of getting us to the core of the issues of what's going on in this letter, which we see magnified in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. The church was disunited, at, and at odds with each other. They had taken the good gifts that God had given them, particularly related to godly preachers, and twisted them as obstacles to unity. They had become groupies of specific leaders. You got Apollos, you got Paul, you've got Peter. And Paul seems to even insinuate that they were speaking negatively and disrespected those who favored one teacher or leader over another. And Paul introduces the solution to this in verse 17, which Tanner ended with last week and says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent, eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied Of its power. The Corinthians needed the power of the cross infused into the chaos of their division. And what he does in our passage today is continues to unpack the power of Christ crucified. And so I'm gonna read verses 18 through 31, and then we're gonna walk through these verses together. The Word of God says this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god for the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men for for consider your calling brothers might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The first truth that I want you to see today is that the cross, Turns worldly wisdom upside down. The cross turns worldly wisdom upside down. And let me just make a few observations here. You'll notice throughout that there's this word play. You've got folly and you've got wisdom. You've got foolish and wise. You've got strength and weakness. You have the world and you have God and the cross. And so how does the cross turn wisdom upside down? The first way it does that is the cross divides all humanity into two camps. We see here in verse 18, look back there with me. The word of the cross says, folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You have these two camps here. Those who are perishing, And those who were being saved. This word perishing is a word that refers to end time destruction. Paul's speaking of the present road of those who currently reject the gospel. And he's not necessarily speaking that that is their final destination. It's like right now this is the road you're headed down. You're headed down a road that leads to destruction. On the other hand, there is us who are being saved. And saved here on the flip side is referring to this end time rescue and deliverance because we're all going to stand before God and give an account for our lives. Now, he uses language here, which may seem kind of funny at first. He says, "Thus, those of us who are being saved, we don't oftentimes say, hey, Man, I'm I'm being saved. We usually say, God saved me. But when you dig into the New Testament, there's actually three tenses that the, the Bible talks about in terms of salvation, and they're all true. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. I have been saved, I can say that confidently because of as I trust and believe, God says you are saved. Like It's as if I've already stood before end time judgment with Jesus because I've believed and trusted in Jesus. But in a very similar sense, I am being saved as God is working sanctification and his spirit in my life and then in a very real sense, I one day will be saved when I stand before God all of this is trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross. The irony here about this group that's perishing, though, is that they seem to be unaware. I mean, if you knew you were headed towards end-time destruction, you would say it would be foolish. Foolish to continue down that path. And that's what Paul's getting at. The cross is folly to people who claim to be wise, yet they show their foolishness by continuing down a path that's gonna face end time judgment and eternal separation from God. What you do with the message of the cross determines which group you belong to. So the cross divides all humanity into two camps. Additionally, the cross is folly to the wise of the world. Let me just back up here for a second. In Corinth, there was a fascination with wisdom as a means to gain influence, status, and power. I would say similar to many that we wrestle with in our day today. I mean, who isn't faced daily with a temptation towards influence, power, and status? In fact, if that's what you want, it's going to become a stumbling block that's going to keep you from the cross of Christ. One commentator notes, Corinth was a magnet for the social ambitious, status-hungry people. We see here in verse 20, where is the, the wise? Where is the scribe, or we might translate, the expert in the Mosaic law? Where is the debater of this age? They were enamored by intellectuals, by scholars, by debaters, by those with PhDs, by those who could give a wicked awesome TED Talk. We're going to elevate them. But what Thomas Schreiner in his commentary notes is important Paul is not denying the intellectual or rhetorical gifts of those under consideration. His point is that their intellectual capacities are ultimately foolish if they do not know the God of the universe, the one true God who created and sustains them. Those wise by the world's standards may be applauded by the world, but they have gotten nowhere in their relationship with God. And so what Paul does here is he quotes in verse 19, Isaiah 29, 14. I don't have time to, like, go back and read Isaiah 29. And what he's saying here is, it's not only foolish your rejection of the cross, but but your rejection, like, God, like, the, the wisdom of the world is under God's judgment. What does it say here? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart those who reject the cross and continue in the wisdom of the world will stand underneath God's judgment. So, why is the cross folly to the wise of the world? This is what Paul unpacks in 21 and following. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not go know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He says this, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, when we think about the foolishness of the cross, one commentator notes, it's only our familiarity with the cross that dulls the strangeness of Paul's message for us. But I want you to think about that. We are people who boast in a cross. Like one of the most cruelest forms of execution in that time. Like none of us walk around boasting about electric chairs or like we don't do that. So, like, our familiarity with this form of execution is, like, we're dulled, but, like, this ought to be striking. You're right. We are foolish. This makes no sense to the world to believe in a man who's hung on a cross. And so the Jews demand signs, and it says the cross for them is a stumbling block. Go read through the Gospels. Like, Jesus did miracles. He did signs and they demanded even even more of him. But the reason the cross is a stumbling block, think about this, a dead and crucified Messiah would have been a contradiction for them. Go study Galatians 3. In fact, Jesus hanging on a cross would be viewed as cursed. That's why Paul argues he became a curse for us. But the Jews look at him and they see someone who is not alive, who has been killed, and would not be somebody that we would run after or follow. On the flip side, Greeks seek wisdom, and the cross is nonsense to them. In their eyes, a Savior would be somebody who was wealthy, who was powerful. So a crucified Savior has no power A crucified Savior would be the epitome of weakness. So why would I even give an ear to your message about a crucified Christ? So Leon Morris in his commentary concludes, the sign-seeking Jews were blind to the significance of the greatest sign of all when it was before them. The wisdom-loving Greeks could not discern the most profound wisdom of all when they were confronted with it. Let me ask you to make this personal. Why is the cross of Christ offensive today? Or maybe, why is it offensive to you? I mean, at the very basic level, the cross demands that you confess that you've sinned against God. I mean, wh- why did Jesus die on the cross? I mean, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. So the, to receive an invitation of the cross, the cross is condemning you as one who has not met what God has asked. You have fallen short. You are a sinner. That's... That's offensive to some people. I love myself. I don't want anybody pointing out what's not good about me. So you're telling me that that I've got to actually acknowledge I've done something wrong or what I'm doing? Like, we live in a world where nobody can tell me what I'm doing is wrong. We live in a world that, that wants to pretend that there is no God, and yet we will all give an account. There is a creator who made us for himself. The world wants you to buy into a lie that this world is all about you and the here and now, but this is not home. We are aliens and we were made for another home. I'm getting preaching now a little bit. The cross demands that you confess that Jesus is the way to God. That's offensive. Because we want to keep our options open. And I don't want, like for the sake of not wanting to offend somebody, it's become an offense to you. And it's an invitation, like Jesus is the one means that you can have eternal life. And that's offensive. The cross doesn't enhance the status or reputation of most in the world. And that's offensive. Like, for you to claim to be a follower of Jesus is probably not getting you street cred at work or in your neighborhood. It's not gonna, my, here's the crazy thing my plea to come to Jesus today is gonna probably do very little for you in the here and now on this earth. It's not status boosting. I, the invitation is you come and die to yourself. And the world is saying, no, you build up your image on Instagram. And I'm saying, no, like, come and die. Like, you need to die. The way of the cross is opposed to the ambitious self-promotion focus of our world. The cross says this, considers others more significant than yourself. And not just in the church, but in your neighborhood, in your workplace, everywhere. The cross says don't use your power to manipulate others and gain influence. The cross says the greatest among you will be servant and least of all. Let me ask you this. It says the Jews demand certain things of of God and the Greeks seek certain, certain things. What are the things you're demanding of God? What is it that you're asking God to submit to your terms? In what ways is the cross a stumbling block for you? Like, just name it right now. This is the thing that is my stumbling block that is keeping me from fully embracing and following Jesus Christ. What are you seeking after in life that's a barrier to you seeking after God? The biggest barrier to the cross is not external to you, it is you. The cross is an invitation to come and die. So the cross divides humanity into two camps. The cross is folly to the wise of the world, but the cross is power and wisdom to those who believe. When it comes to knowing God, The heart of the issue is not wisdom. It's belief and trust. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And notice this. If the foolishness is for Jews and Greeks, then the invitation is also for Jews and Greeks. Here's the irony. The cross is a sign and points to the true wisdom from God. So how does the cross display the wisdom and power of God at when we when we talk about the message of the cross, at the center of it is the crucifixion of Jesus. Think about this. He was beaten bloodied, tortured, mocked, ridiculed, humiliated, nailed to a cross and hung up for all to see. And yet, the greatest injustice in the world in the sovereign plan of God was the will of God to bring about the salvation of many. Central to the plan of God was Jesus who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So here is how the cross displays the wisdom and power of God. It is simultaneously the punishment for sin and mercy and compassion and forgiveness for sinners. It is the simultaneous display of the wrath of God and love of God, whereas the Beati Anuabwale says, "Can there be a greater display of God's wisdom than that singular act wherein the unrelenting holiness of God is satisfied, even as the untiring grace of God redeems the guilty?" It is both wisdom and power. Christ crucified is power because it is the power to defeat evil, sin, and save us from eternal death. It has a divine power that other messages lack, which is why Paul in Romans would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. You know, going back to 18, he says, for the message, the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to us who believe it is, what would you expect him to say there? You would expect him to say wisdom. What's the opposite of folly? Wisdom, but he doesn't. He says power. Now, here in verse, what, 24, he combines wisdom and power, but I think what's going on here is he's trying to draw away the Corinthians from their love fest with wisdom, To see and embrace the power of God. And Jesus isn't just the source of wisdom. He is the very expression of wisdom. Go read Colossians 2 verses 1 through 3. And so Paul continues in this section, verse 25, for the foolishness of God. Is God ever foolish? Okay, like I want you to make sure you hear the irony there. In the weakness of God, is God ever weak? Can somebody speak back to me today? Is God ever foolish? No. Thank you, yes. He's not foolish. Is God ever weak? No. no. So what's going on? So the foolishness of God and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God at his worst is better than humans at their best. Is What? A couple of commentators say, for those with eyes to see, the cross displays the glory of God. So we could go to 2 Corinthians 4, where where Paul talks about the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And yet in the very same next few verses, he says in some, God has said, let there be light and light shines and eyes are open to see in the very same cross beauty and glory. Notice this. I skipped over this earlier, but in verse 21, it is God's pleasure to save those who believe. So let me wrap up this section. I gotta move us on. How, How does this whole argument relate to division (laughs) to kind of tie us back around right like because that's the point like man they're they're not unified and he's going to the gospel here here's why their disunity was a result of elevating human wisdom and a lack of focus on the cross they took their eyes off Jesus and so this passage is a call hey don't take your cue from culture But from the gospel, and in particular the cross, when the cross is central in the church, competitiveness, grumbling, and unholy allegiances dissolve away. The solution was a renewal, was a renewed, radical Christ centeredness. Unity will come when we focus on Jesus and his work, and we should let Jesus and his work be a lens through which we see all of life. So the first truth is that the cross turns worldly wisdom upside down. The second truth in this latter part of the section here is God calls and saves in such a way that he alone gets the glory. We go into verse 26, and Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Now, He's already used this word call. Look back up at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Now he's, he, he introduced it in 24. He's, he's returning back and he's gonna unpack this. And trust me, it also has relevance to, to the division and disunity here. And so calling speaks of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Why does he do this? Why is he saying, hey, consider your calling. Remember, Paul's writing to a city and church obsessed with reputation and honor. When rightly understood, the sovereignty of God in salvation crushes pride and produces a Christ-like humility. He goes on and says this, brothers, not many, and just to be clear, he didn't say none of them. He just says, not many of them were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, or we might say, as the NET translates, a privileged position. On the flip side, verse 27, but God chose, now just to highlight here, when we talk about calling and choosing, those are connected here with what we say the doctrine of election. I'm going to come back and unpack it here in a little bit. But those are like, those words are used similarly, the calling and choosing. But God chose what is foolish. Get it? He's, we have the upside down nature of the cross here. Not many were powerful, but God has chosen, or not many, of them. Um, sorry, not many were wise. So what has God done? But God chose what is foolish in the world. Not many were powerful. So God chose what is weak in the world. Not many were of noble birth. So God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in his present. His point here is he's highlighting, as he's talking to the church here, he said, Hey, not many were leading figures in the community. But on the flip side, the things that the world elevates and praises, knowledge, intellect, power, rank, is not what leads to salvation and knowing God. God's calling is not contingent on your status in the world. Now, let me unpack here. Like, what do we mean here when we talk about God calling or or this effectual call of God? We often, when we talk about salvation— we talk about it from a human perspective. Like when we, when we come up here and like we'll have baptism Sundays and somebody's like sharing their story, we're talking about, man, how God saved us. And, and usually we would include in that that, man, what does somebody got to do to be saved? Repent and believe. That's usually like, hey, you need to turn and believe. In fact, that's what Paul has said in verse 21, right? To those who believe. There's no doubt And just hear me clearly, I am not minimizing or doing away with a human responsibility as it relates to salvation. There is a call to believe. Go read Acts 18. You know what Paul does in Acts 18? It says in 18:4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks to do what? To believe. There was human responsibility there. He gave his life to preaching the gospel. And yet at the very same time, the scriptures talk about salvation from God's perspective. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's highlighting their calling or God's choosing. We say say it this way in our statement of faith. Election is the gracious purpose of God where he chose some persons unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but of his sheer mercy in Christ In consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. God's grace, therefore, excludes boasting and promotes humility. A parallel passage you could go to be like in Ephesians 1. Where Ephesians 1, 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Or maybe think about this analogy. Um, In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he fast forward to verse 4, and he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, what did God do? God made us alive. Again, it's it's highlighting from God's perspective, yes, I repented and believed, but when I look from what God did, God called me, God chose me, and God made me alive. And this is why Paul, back in 1 Corinthians, can say in verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ. I stand here today, As a follower of Christ, and it has nothing to do with my personal wisdom, intellect, status. It is solely the grace of God. It is because of him that I am in Christ. He is the reason, God is the reason, that I have a relationship with Jesus. Paul impacts here, going on down in verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God. And then, what I think these terms reply to here, or apply to, he's unpacking in what ways has Jesus become to us wisdom from God. He's become to us righteousness. By believing, we are justified, and Christ has become our righteousness. It says here, sanctification. Most likely, I believe, Paul is referring here to positional sanctification versus progressive sanctification, not. Not that I'm going to become holy, but I am holy. I am sanctified as a result of what Jesus has done in the gospel. And then redemption, that I have been purchased, I have been bought, and with the hope that there will be a full redemption of my body in the return of Christ. And here's a cool note. It says here, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So, I am in Christ Jesus and now that is the foundation that gives me unity with everybody else who was in Christ Jesus. We are in the body. Paul's gonna unpack that later on. We've already seen that in in 1 Corinthians 12. But But because of God, we are in him and it unites me with the body of other believers. He is our source of unity. And I would just say, for some of you, maybe this is new thinking about God's work of salvation. Um, I I would affirm both of them. There's human responsibility and there's there's, there's God's sovereignty and they're friends and that we want to affirm both. And at times it may seem like a mystery. How do we comprehend both of them? It's a mystery that we could look at and the cross is a mystery in the way that Jesus at the the very same time can display the very wrath of God and be the very will of God and display the love of God. Um, I would say it is often God's pattern as you study the scriptures to work this way. God often bypasses the firstborn. God often um, chooses the most unlikely of figures, not the the person you would expect, and so we see that here also in how God has worked salvation, which may lead us to this as we wrap up. Why does God work this way? It's pretty simple: to condemn human pride. If I can do something to earn salvation. If salvation is through wisdom, well, then who gets the praise and the glory? I do. But God has so orchestrated salvation such that we can't boast in ourselves. That when I boast, it's I was dead and God made me alive. And so Paul repeats this twice to emphasize this point. In verse 29, he says, so that... Here's purpose. No human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he repeats it in verse 31 by quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in the, these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so, what's, what's the whole point of what Paul's getting at here in the church? I believe it's this He's calling us to humble yourself and make Jesus your boast. Humble yourself and make Jesus your boast. Will you hang on? to your demands and pursuits or will you lay them down and you find eternal life in the power and wisdom of Christ crucified maybe today god is opening the eyes of some of you to see what you at one point said the cross is foolish to see well that is wisdom that is power and you may be asking hey what should i do i would just plead with you to do the very thing that paul said here belief not an intellectual, a belief that's a giving of your life, a belief that says, I'm turning and I'm following Jesus with my life. It's a belief that says, I'm a sinner, but Jesus was not a sinner. I'm a sinner and deserve what Jesus went through on the cross, but Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm believing in Jesus so that one day when I stand before God, I'm gonna say, God, Thank you for sending your son because it is only in him that I deserve eternal life with you. God often works in a way to nullify human pride. So RHC, may our boast be in Jesus. Let's think and pray like God and not like the world. Don't just pray based on what you, be, you perceive to be the most likely outcome. Pray with the expectation that God will work and move in a way that nullifies pride. And as we boast in Jesus, make your boast not be about Tanner or John Reddy or John Chasteen or my community group leader or my D group leader or my team leader or my director. Make your boast in Jesus. I'll conclude with Galatians 6, 14, where Paul writes, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for this word. And God, we ask for your grace to produce the humility of the cross in us. God, would you open our eyes to see beauty and glory in the cross? God, for those that would say, I'm in the camp of those who are being saved, God, would you continue to give us a resolve to to not just believe at one time, but to, to continue to believe and trust and to follow you? God, would you show us where pride is rearing its ugly head in our lives? In our church, God, would you crush pride? God, would we be a church that it would be said of us that they boast? They boast in Jesus, they make much of Him. God, in areas where there's disunity or division, God, would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus? And God, we pray the gospel would continue to come in and shape and unify. And guide us. God, that you might be brought glory. And we thank you for the beauty of the cross. May Christ be magnified. God, we pray in his name. Amen.